Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 29 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, August the 19th. First, I'll be talking to Redleaf CEO Ian Chubach about how to build the post-pandemic workplace. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about the economic slowdown in China and its implications for Australia. But now let's talk to Ian Chubach. Ian, tell us about what are the opportunities presented in the post-pandemic workplace? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a a bit of a debate that's raging at the moment, isn't there? There's, I don't know if you've been following the same news articles and podcasts that I have, but you know, there's kind of debate about whether people should be working from home or whether they should be working remotely. You know, that's, for me, that's not yet settled. And I think it probably depends on every organization's circumstance as to how they, how they kind of deal with it. But for most of my clients, anyway, it seems like they're settling on some kind of hybrid model. You know, I think the, for me, the thing that sort of sticks out is the fact that senior management are, are presented, I think, uh, with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, really, to reinvigorate their organization from a cultural perspective. I mean, there's a threat there, isn't there? If we, if, if we, if we create two different workforces, one that's working at home and one that's coming into the office re- uh, regularly, that uh, out of that that two cultures bubble up and it creates a bit of an us against them scenario. Um, and I think that long-term is not healthy for organizations. So, you know, what, what we're trying to drive at here is a one, a one culture, uh, a one team culture, regardless of how we settle on the, on the hybrid workplace. So I think that's the opportunity. The opportunity is for um, executives in organizations to recognize that now is the time that benefits of of a two and a half year hiatus where people have not been able to gather and meet in any meaningful way that that together with advantages in technology have allowed for us to be able to connect hybrid workforces in ways that we've never done before so that's the opportunity for me well okay but how how you're obviously saying the firm needs to have a unified culture to have one team culture yes how do they develop a unified culture after two and a half years of lockdowns and hybrid workplaces all of that sort of stuff yes i mean for me the the the, you know there are there are a couple of steps there The, the the first one and this has been the truth before covid and the pandemic 
is that the first step is that the senior executives in the organization, so this, the, the top team, obviously need to define uh, what the organization stands for, its mission, its purpose, um, a set of guiding principles, and ultimately the priorities of the business. So, you know, that's never, you know, that's, that's still as important as it was a couple of years ago. In fact, even more importantly. Um, so that would be the first step is, is the senior teams get on the same page. Once they've done that, then it's really about communicating with the rest of the organization, what the executives themselves believe the purpose and the mission and the guiding principles should be. And when I say communicating, you know, I'm a great admirer of an author called Patrick Lencioni. And one of his uh, comments is that you should be over-communicating the clarity that senior executives are are tasked with defining and and then rolling out throughout the rest of the organization. So, yeah, those would be two of the steps that I think contribute towards a unified culture. Well, you probably need to redefine the organization's purpose. Yes, exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, and, and that's, and, and hence my, my belief that it's an opportunity. You know, uh, we've had two and a half years of forced change and in effect a massive experiment. And, uh, you know, the world may have changed for your organization, not necessarily every organization, but many organizations, the world has changed. And that presents senior executives with that opportunity to reshape the culture that they'd like to see and reshape the purpose and the mission they'd like to see in their organization. But they need to do that uh, as a senior executive first and then and then share that with the rest of the organization. And that's, of course, when you get the buy-in and the, uh, you know, the collective effort um, going forward. Well, you'd surely have to provide line managers with uh, the means to connect the organizational priorities to the workplace, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, so the, so the step that sort of runs after that clarity is, okay, so, you know, you know, my view, it's a mistake to look too far ahead, particularly in this volatile world that we're living, increasingly volatile world that we live in. So, you know, what are some of the, uh, you know, short to medium term priorities? Because momentum is really important. So, you know, what are some of the, uh, what are some of the priorities that the organization um, sees? Uh, in the next, well, call it six to 12 months, uh, the things that need to get done or nothing else matters, you know, what are those? Uh, and they are organizationally focused. So they're not you know, focused on a particular department, but rather you know, the, what we would call the must-win battles of the organization. Align those or align behind those and then communicate what that means for every person in the organization. And that's part of that over-communicate clarity piece that I was speaking about earlier. So, I mean, you, you would surely you'd have to do stuff like search for heroes within the business and share stories of them, how, they, how they've risen to the challenge. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, Leon, one of the things that I notice is that too many organizations are looking for heroes outside of their business. I mean, you know, on occasions that works. But, you know, in, in many of my clients, large clients, there are heroes in those organizations that uh, don't get the profile that they deserve. So if you, if you find, you know, it could be something as simple as uh, you know, a single parent that despite all odds has been able to uh, you know, shape their life and, and move forward and embrace these changes and succeed. We should be making more of those people rather than inspecting you know, the latest Commonwealth 
games champion to come and motivate our organization from outside. Uh, so I, I do believe they are, they are heroes uh, in every organization. And at this stage of that kind of cultural shift that I've been describing, it's about momentum and it's about uh, creating authentic heroes and uh, organizations respond when you make things real and identifying those heroes and, and publicizing their stories in a way that is real can be extremely powerful. That would mean the management would actually need to actually look very carefully at who is doing what. <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought that such a thing exists? Yes, absolutely. You know, this is not something that you outsource. This is something that is about leadership. And, you know, that classic distinction between managers and leaders. Uh, leaders have the capacity to be across the detail and by all means manage, but they, they are, they, their primary function is to create a future for the organization and to sell that future uh, in, the, in, the, in the broader sense of the word to their people. So yes, this is very much, sorry, Leon, this is very much part of the, of the um, leadership side of being a senior executive. Well, the manager is just there to manage the business, but the leader is there to actually, well, take, turn the business, take the business in a new direction and transform yeah. the business. Yes, exactly right. And most importantly, uh, you know, um, during tough times, and for some uh, right now, it is a tough time, uh, is to lead and to inspire and to align and to encourage and cajole. And, you know, th th those, are the, those are some of the words that I would use to describe, you know, leader's function in this very turbulent time. Indeed. And uh, what you're saying is that this pandemic could give out organizations generally the opportunity to transform themselves. Yes, exactly. And, 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 and this is why I do believe um, that it is, a, it is unique. You know, I've been in this, uh, in, this, in this role and in this industry for the last 25 years, and I can't recall a time when you know, organizations have been forced to, to operate in a completely different way like they have in the last two and a half years. And there's an opportunity here, which I believe shouldn't be wasted. You know, the, 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 the temptation is that you have your first meaningful town hall or all hands meeting in two and a half years, and you roll out the same agenda that happened, uh, you know, that you deployed pre-COVID with the same old tired PowerPoints that drive um, in the same role-focused presentations, you know, that's not the way yeah, uh, sure. to demonstrate that the world has changed. Things are different now, and people need to be engaged to be able to jump on board. Well, Ian, it's been fascinating talking to you, and thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Leon. Thank you. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory. Michael, there's a property market downturn in China and falling demand. Uh, and China's economy is slumping. Uh, what's your view about this? Well, I think you've summarised it quite succinctly. For a very long period of time, a very large slice of the market thought China was magic and had somehow managed to reinvent the wheel. And patiently, for year after year after year, I've had to explain to people, no, they have a very different economy to ours. It's a political economy. It grows gangbusters, or it will grow gangbusters for a certain number of years, and then it will hit a wall. And growth will slow down aggressively, and they'll be left with a series 
of very unpalatable choices without any easy structural solution. And for all the years that they hadn't hit that wall, analysts like myself who were saying that look very wrong. And then you hit that wall and suddenly everyone has to recognize, goodness me, you were right all along. And actually there isn't an easy way out of this. And China's not the first to go there. Japan had a similar experience. Brazil had a similar experience. Lots of countries in the past have used a similar playbook and ended up the same way. What can be the way out? Well, there's no good way out. That's the first thing to recognize. Anyone who's selling you a vision that China can maintain five and a half percent growth rates, five percent, even four percent going forward in perpetuity is, you know, is selling you a Brooklyn Bridge built by a Chinese firm. They have very, very few options. They've got far too much debt. They've got far too much property, far too much property debt. They've got far too much infrastructure. They've got far too much physical capacity. They make too many goods and keep selling to everybody because they can't absorb them locally. So your options are not good. You can default on all your debt and everything blows up, similar to the GFC or Thailand in 1997 and your currency collapses. They won't let that happen for obvious reasons. You can try and grind your way through it slowly with a gradual, gradual restructuring internally and try and export your way out at the same time. And you look like Japan after their bubble burst in 1991. And if you consider also the fact that dem demographically China is going in a very similar direction to Japan, very high speed. So anyway, that looks very similar to Japan after 1991, except for the fact that China is so much larger than Japan and is not under the US defense umbrella. So effectively, the US and the West would allow Japan to do that because they were in our club, quote unquote. The world isn't going to carry China if they do that. But that's a, that's the route that it looks like they're actually going down at the moment. Then you can just close yourself off from the rest of the world, like North Korea. They're too big and too integrated with the world. They can't do that and they can't feed themselves and they import a lot of energy. So that won't happen. You can print your way out. And of course, that doesn't work out very well for countries like Argentina or Brazil, but that's that's on the table too. Or you can uh, escalate geopolitically to try and basically reorder the world economy and the world uh, architecture to make it more favorable to yourself. And countries have tried that in the past. Russia's having a go at it now with Ukraine. And that ends very badly too. So I, I've painted a slightly broader brush there than maybe just pure economics. But the key point is there is no easy way out of this. And if there were, China would already have done it. What does this mean geopolitically for China? Well... A China that's no longer capable of growing rapidly when it's become addicted to that is either going to have to accept that it gradually fades long before it's achieved the global role that it's set for itself and the Communist Party of China is set for itself, which will be very, very difficult for them to swallow. Or, they, as I was just alluding to, they will attempt to try and say, look, we've got clear ambitions, to, for example, to have more people using the renminbi and not the dollar internationally. We've got clear ambitions, you know, to have a much larger international role. And we will use whatever leverage we've built up, which is significant over the past couple of decades to try and push and pull to make sure that we can achieve that even if we can't do it just with pure growth. And if the US resists, which it absolutely will and absolutely is, geopolitical tensions can only escalate. And the irony is if China had continued to grow, those tensions would have escalated. And now that China cannot continue to grow, they will escalate, but for different reasons. Okay. I mean, Xi Jinping has already established himself as a, well, virtually a leader for life. What does this mean for him politically? Well, obviously, we have to wait and see what happens at the next party congress. We can't say anything concrete until that emerges. And even afterwards, we still can't say anything concrete immediately because there's very little transparency about policy direction or what will actually happen you know, versus what is said. But none of the fundamental problems that I've just been describing can be resolved easily. And they will take very, very bold decisive action. One path you could logically go down is to introduce much more opening up and reform. So much more capital inflows from abroad, much more market forces, etc, etc. That's incredibly unlikely to happen under the present leadership. We're going rapidly in a different direction. Common prosperity, which is a much, much more Marxism 2.0 kind of philosophy. That doesn't bode well again 
for geopolitical stability going forward, because it doesn't suggest Europe or America will be embracing China more closely and getting more and more integrated to help it deal with these problems. It alludes to the complete opposite, that there'll be more decoupling and more rivalry and more tension. So there are no easy solutions here, but obviously China would have to open up, surely. No, I, I strongly disagree. I think there's absolutely no sign of that happening and enormously numerous and strong signs of the counter trend happening, that China is actually closing down more and more on multiple fronts. And I'm not a lone voice saying that. If you speak to China analysts who are you know, objective and neutral, they will tell you that right across the board, that's what the vast majority of them are seeing, that this is a, a China moving in the opposite of that direction. So you can see China closing up, closing down more? Yes, well, it is doing it. There's a limit to how far it can close down because it can't feed itself and it can't power itself. And it relies on exports to other countries for the moment because it can't rebalance demand towards its own consumers because it's almost impossible to shift from an economy where you've built too much property and too much infrastructure to one where you stop building that and suddenly have money in people's pockets to buy goods instead. That, that transition after decades of going the wrong direction means a biting recession. And understandably, no economy would want to go through that. But right the way across the board, you can see signs on social media in terms of political actions, in terms of you know, social trends, that it's becoming more nationalistic. And there is a, a, you know, a smaller and smaller role being played by foreign firms, foreign experts, foreign institutions. So China is blazing its own path and every country is entitled to do that. But, it, but it's not the happy, well, they'll open up to deal with this scenario that some people might try and sell you. But there is an issue here of there'll be rising unemployment and people will be struggling more to get their money from banks and everything like that. And that will create a lot of tensions in China, won't it? Well, it is doing. I mean, even officially, and they don't publish these data the way that, you know, Australia does. Youth unemployment in China is apparently running somewhere near 20%. That's a staggering figure, a staggering figure. And there's no sign of that improving. There are widespread reports of uh, educated graduates all struggling to get jobs because the economy is performing that poorly. And you have had unrest already. You have had and are seeing mortgage strikes where people are just not paying the mortgage on properties for second, third, fourth properties because they know they're not going to be worth what they paid for them when they're completed. What's the resolution to this? Well, I mean, China is leaning towards bailing companies out, which will end up on the central bank balance sheet. And by the way, Australia would do exactly the same in the same position. And I imagine you probably will in the near future. And at the same time, it's talking about nationalizing uh, the industry in various different ways. There's even been a story floated on Bloomberg that they're considering appropriating land that hasn't been developed, that property developers have bought and haven't built on yet. And the central government basically saying that's ours now and giving them nothing for it. And if they do do that, then they'll have to appropriate construction companies and then they'll have to build low cost public housing. But if you do do that, Socially, you solve your problem. It'd be very popular with poor people, but you'll destroy the savings of everybody who's relied on property for their pension, which again is a problem that Australia knows all about because you've made exactly the same mistake. So what future do you see for China now over the next five years? Well, it depends what path they want to go down. I was suggesting earlier that there are a number of different Asian country parallels that you can put forward. And I've been doing that for a long time. I've been saying, look, is it Thailand? Is it Japan? Is it North Korea? Um, you know, is it a different iteration of Japan, which is even less pleasant, which we see being discussed in some circles today? Those are your only options. If you're not going to open up and suddenly reform and become a more pro-market economy, and I think we can rule that out, that's it. That's your fixed set of options. And voices that want to presume there's an effortless channel for Australian exports, there's an effortless way for the world economy to grow, and someone we can all lean on and rely on forever, don't want to hear the fact that story is done. It's over. Forget about it. And that's, so that's actually the final question. What will this mean for the Australian and global economies? 
Well, we're already seeing it. You know, we're heading for a global recession. There are many reasons for that. China is part of it. It's not driving that by itself, but it's not helping any recovery. And for Australia to be relying on China now is, well, it makes as much sense as relying on the property market. It was nice while it lasted. Does anyone seriously think that's going to be something that will get you through another generation? Really? What you need to do is find something different. I don't know what it will be if it's not property in Australia, but I can see who it might be if it's not China for Australia. There are lots of other large economies that could certainly benefit from what you've been exporting to China going forward. Right. Okay. But I mean, the issue is that Australia escaped the last few recessions that America went through, like the tech wreck and uh, the global financial crisis, because of China. But we're not going to have that now. You're not? No. And I have to say the RBA released their statement on monetary policy this morning, and it was even by their standards, an absolute miasma of magical thinking, hocus pocus, voodoo and gibberish. It, it, it really was. It was. It's actually quite embarrassing to read that. And I'm quite embarrassed for other analysts who couldn't see that in their coverage of it and have to kind of pay lip service to it that this is sensible and normal. I mean, they're talking about the fact that there's a narrow path to avoid recession, but growth will be strong this year and quite strong the year after that. And quite strongly the year after that. And interest rates will only go up to 3% and they may start coming down again. But inflation is going to be 7.75% this year and then down to 4 and then down to 3 It doesn't get to 2 until 2025. And unemployment isn't going to go up very much. And nothing much is going to happen to housing even as interest rates go up. Meanwhile, the Bank of England is calling for a really deep recession. The market's pricing for a deep recession in America, even if the Fed won't admit it. Europe won't admit it, but the market's again expecting a recession. The RBA just seems to think that effortlessly Australia will just stumble through crisis after crisis because something will turn up. You know, she'll be right. They're wrong. They're almost certainly wrong. It's just a question of whether growth is much lower or inflation is much higher or both. And of course, they're not even talking about the property market because that's taboo. Michael, that's, those are sobering thoughts. And thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. By the way, I'd like to just add, I do remain a very big optimist on Australia in the long run. It's got an awful lot of good things going for it. But, you know, there are always a few speed bumps and there's nothing wrong with occasionally realising that you can't rely on the same old strategy and having to, you know, freshen up your toolkit. Nothing wrong with that at all. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. What's happening in the news? Well, the worrying news for Australia, China's economic slowdown deepened in July due to a worsening property slump and continuing coronavirus lockdowns, with an unexpected cut in interest rates unlikely to turn things around while those twin drags remain. Retail sales, industrial output and investment all slowed amidst economist estimates in July. The surveyed jobless rate for those aged 16 to 24 climbed to 19.9%, a record high and headache for the Communist Party, as it gears up for a major Congress in coming months that's expected to give President Xi Jinping a precedent-defying third term in power. The data suggests a crisis of confidence among Chinese businesses and households, adding another threat to the world economy as global demand for everything from Apple iPhones to luxury goods takes a knock. At the same time, a worsening property slump is being felt at home and abroad as commodity prices such as iron ore and copper plummet. China's bonds surge and the offshore one weakened as investors absorbed the disappointing data prints and surprised great cut. China's leadership has ruled out large-scale stimulus and vowed to continue with its stringent COVID-0 policy, requiring authorities shut down businesses and lock down the population when major outbreaks occur, as is the case now in the resort island of Hainan. That's dimming the growth outlook for the rest of the year, which economists are downgrading further below 4%. An oil giant, Saudi Aramco, made an astonishing $700 million profit in every single day, the biggest quarterly profit of any publicly listed company in history. The Saudi Arabian Petroleum and Gas Company reported an eye-watering $68 billion, that's US $48.4 billion, of profit in the second quarter of 2022. Its earnings were boosted by surging demand as COVID-19 restrictions were dropped 
around the world and pushed even higher by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Net income lipped 90% year-on-year for the world's biggest oil producer, which clocked its second straight quarterly record after announcing $55.46 billion, that's US $39.5 billion, for, for the first quarter. Aramco's second quarter windfall was the biggest quarterly adjusted profit of any listed company worldwide, according to Bloomberg. The state-owned Saudi firm heads a list of oil majors raking in massive sums after ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, Total Energy and Eni also revealed multi-billion dollar profits in the second quarter. And the world's biggest fund manager, BlackRock, has, ne- has selected Australia for the rollout of its largest investment in grid-scale batteries that will be crucial to driving the ship from coal to clean energy. BlackRock, which manages US $10 trillion, that's $14 trillion Aussie, announced it intends to commit $1 billion for nine battery storage projects spanning the nation's east coast electricity grid after agreeing to acquire Melbourne-based battery developer Acacia Energy, which has nine projects proposed across the national electricity market. The commitment marks the American BMS first investment in deploying battery storage projects in the Asia-Pacific region and its most significant investment in batteries globally. BlackRock Asia-Pacific's co-head of climate infrastructure, Charlie Reed, said BlackRock had selected Australia because it was experiencing many challenges of the transition from fossil fuels to, to renewable energy much sooner than other countries. And a weekly gauge of consumer confidence put together by ANZ and market research company Roy Morgan increased 4.9% last week, but remains in negative territory. The sentiment index registered 84.2 points for this week, well below its long-term average of 112.2 points based on data stretching back three decades. And Australian workers have suffered another large but real pay cut, with the latest official data showing wages growth fell further behind the surging cost of living in the year to June. The latest Australian Bureau of Statistics wage price index shows baseline pay packets rose 2.6% over the year to June after a 0.7% rise in the quarter. This means real wages slumped 3.5% over the year to June amid inflation of 6.1%. And Nine has denied that its chairman, Peter Costello, acted as an undisclosed Crown lobbyist, working personally for James Packer as he attempted to get closer to the Victorian gaming minister. The billionaire businessman, James Packer, claimed that he paid Costello $300,000 in 2011 to try and lobby his friend and former staffer, Michael O'Brien, the then Victorian gaming minister. This has been alleged in private correspondence with the former federal treasurer. According to the emails, Mr Packer claimed he'd hired Costello to be a casino lobbyist in 2011, helping him get close to the Victorian gaming minister. Knight said Mr Costello was an advisor to Mr Packer during that time and refuted claims he was working as an unregistered lobbyist. In the emails, Mr Packer accuses Mr Costello of hypocrisy and deceiving the Nine Entertainment Board, which he chairs, about his time as a secret Crown lobbyist in 2011. Your job was to get me closer to the then gaming minister Michael O'Brien, Mr Packer wrote to Mr Costello in July, adding he paid the future fund chairman $300,000 to lobby for me for Crown. Mr Costello was not the registered lobbyist for Crown or Mr Packer's private vehicle, Consolidated Press Holdings. The gaming group was represented by Strategic Advice Australia, a firm owned and operated by former Labor National Secretary Carl Bittar. Mr Costello, who joined the Nine Board in 2013, was briefly listed as the owner of a registered lobbying firm, ECG Advisory Solutions, that year. Mr O'Brien, who worked for Mr Costello for several years from 1999, when the latter was Federal Treasurer, said he had met and was lobbied by a number of Crown executives. And KPMG has exited 11 people from the firm for misconduct, including bullying, sexual harassment and policy breaches during the past year. The number of complaints more than doubled to 88 after a concerted internal campaign to encourage staff to speak up about unethical behaviour at the firm. 
The firm expects the number of complaints to continue to rise amid the push to instil a culture where partners and staff members are unafraid to report wrongdoing. More than one-third of the 88 complaints, or about 32, related to policy breaches, while another 27%, or 24, were bullying allegations. Nine complaints were about sexual harassment, with seven substantiated, leading to one individual leaving the firm. This is up from three reports of sexual harassment in 2021. Overall, the firm finalised 69 misconduct investigations last financial year, with 38 or 55% substantiated partially or in full. And the average weekly fuel cost for Australian motorists has hit $100 after rising an extra $5 a week over the course of the past three months, according to new figures. The Australian Automobile Association's latest Transport Affordability Index, released on Sunday, shows average weekly fuel costs across the nation rose to $100.39 in the June quarter. Typical weekly household transport costs, which take into consideration average weekly spending on fuel, car loan replacements, tolls, insurance and servicing, as well as public transport, also grew by $11.74 in capital cities in the first quarter to $412.21 and $342.98 in the region. Michael Bradley, Managing Director of the Peak Motoring Body, said it was the first time the national weekly fuel cost average had passed $100 since the index's inception in 2016. And Australian employers are throwing in the towel on hybrid work, with more than 40% of companies no longer expecting staff to ever make an appearance in the office. More than four in every ten companies no longer expect their staff to show up to the office. A survey of nearly 1,200 companies conducted by the Australian HR Institute in July found just 4% required employees to work in the office full time. Of those surveyed, 7% of organisations allowed employees to work from home continuously, while 34% had no set number of days required in the office but didn't encourage it. The average proportion of employees working continuously from home has increased from 5% before the pandemic to 18%. Almost 30% of companies are requiring a minimum of three days a week in the office and 16% request two days. More than half the organisations revealed they were offering incentives to lure staff back to the office, such as social events and free coffee or meals. Those surveyed reported that before the pandemic, on average 23% of employees worked from home at least one day a week, now 58%. More than half the human resources professionals surveyed expected that working from home or remote working arrangements would remain the same over the next two years, while 25% predicted that the rate of working from home and remote working would increase. And BHP has issued an apology to staff subjected to sexual harassment after revealing it had received substantiated reports of more than 100 cases in the past year. Of 103 substantiated cases in the 2021 financial year, BHP said 37 had involved non-consensual kissing or touching of a sexual nature. Another 66 had involved other forms of harassment, including sexual comments, unwelcome gestures, or sending inappropriate text messages or images. Australia's largest miner said 101 of the individuals involved in the 103 substantiated cases had been sacked, had resigned or been removed from the site if they were a contractor. We are deeply sorry and apologise unreservedly to those who have experienced or continue to experience any form of sexual harassment anywhere in BHP, the company said on Tuesday. BHP said it had been conducting assessments to identify risk and prevent sexual harassment, including through leadership and training, enhanced security accommodation sites, confidential reporting processes and disciplinary actions. Similar issues have been reported at resources giant Rio Tinto. And the profit reporting season continues. 
BHP booked a US $30.9 billion net profit for the financial year, up 173% from last year. Santos has reported free cash flow of US $1.7 billion for the period and underlying profit of US $1.3 billion, up 300% on the prior corresponding period. Corporate travel swung to a $3.1 million net profit in the year ended June 30 from the year earlier loss of $55.35 million. Dexas full-year 2022 net profit rose 42% to $1.62 billion and adjusted funds from operations were 53.2 cents, up 2.7%. Fund manager Magellan has reported 23% fall in revenue to $553.53 million, while adjusted net profit after tax fell by 3% to $399.73 million. Blood products giant CSL had a 5% fall in profit to US $2.3 billion, that's $3.3 billion Aussie. PAC's net profit fell 25% to $70 million in the year to June 30. E-commerce player Redbubble has reported net profit loss of $24.6 million in the year to the 30th of June, down 56% from a profit of $31.2 million in FY21. Software platform Wispier has doubled its net loss to $19.4 million on sales up 48% to $70.6 million FY 2022. Shopping mall landlord vicinity centres has swung to a $1.2 billion profit, increasing 571% from a loss of $258 million in FY21. Domain has reported net profit after tax of $55.3 million for the 2022 financial year, up 46% on the prior year. Downer delivered a 17% drop in net profit to $152 million. Acquisitive software business ReadyTech has posted a net profit of $8.8 million on sales up 56.5% to $78.3 million. Brambles delivered US $571.7 million in after-tax profit on a statutory basis, up 7% on the previous year, while underlying profit increased 6% to US $930 million. Babcor has reported record statutory profit after tax of $125.8 million for the year, ended 30th of June, up 5.9% on the previous year. Seven West Media reported underlying net profit after tax, excluding significant items, of $200.8 million for the year ended, June 25, an increase of 60% on the previous year. SCA Property Group reported funds from operations of 17.4 cents, or growth of 17.9%, and adjusted funds from operations of 15.3 cents, or growth of 21.3%. Super Retail Group, which owns Rebel, Super Cheap Auto, BSEF and MacPack brand, said its net profit fell 19.9% to $241.2 million in the 53 weeks ended July 2, compared with the consensus forecast of $224.4 million. Sims has reported sales revenue of $9.26 billion for the 2022 financial year, up 56.6% on the prior corresponding period, while statutory EBIT increased 146.4% to $773.6 million. Temple & Webster's FY 2022 profit lost 14.2% to $12 million, while sales climbed 30.6% to $426.3 million on an EBITDA margin of 3.8%. Buy now pay later business Cecil's net loss widened to US $43.1 million, that's $61.2 million Aussie for the full year. Growth Point Properties Australia has announced a 17% decline in statutory profits after tax of $459.2 million. Challenger Financial reported a 57% drop in net profits after tax to $253.7 million in the 2022 financial year. James Hardy cut its full-year profit forecast for the 12 months ending March 31 to between US $730 million, that's $1.04 billion Aussie, to 
US $780 million from the previous band of US $740 million to US $820 million. Real Estate Investment Trust Goodman Group grew profit operating profits by 25.3% to $1.5 billion in the 2022 financial year, while revenues jumped by more than a third to $5.2 billion. SG Fleet Net Profit rose 39% to $60.7 million. Abacus Property Group grew funds from operations by 18% to $160.9 million in the 2022 financial year. Seek reported a 130% surge in full-year net profit from continuing operations to $240.8 million. Bluescope's overall net profit more than doubled to $2.81 billion in the year ended June 30, underlying profits before interest and tax total $3.79 billion, a full-year record. It was the highest profit since Bluescope was split off from BHP in 2002 and had its own ASX listing. Temple and Webster net profit fell 14.2% to $11.97 million, hurt by its initial investment of $1.7 million to its new home improvement site, The Build. Car sales has reported net profit after taxes of $161 million for the year ended June 30, up 23% on the prior corresponding year. Charter Hall Social Infrastructure, REIT, CQE, has reported a statutory profit of $358.5 million for the year ended June 30, up $184.4 million on the prior corresponding period. Beach Energy's total revenues increased 13% to $1.8 billion in FY 2022, while its underlying earnings lifted 17% to $1.1 billion. GPT Group has reported net profit after tax of $529.7 million for the six-month end of June 30, down from $760.5 million in the prior corresponding period. Listed investment company Balladore Technology has reported net profit, which rose 23% to $34 million, while gains on financial assets rose 36% to $70 million. GUD Holdings reported statutory net profit after tax of $27.3 million, down 55.2% on the prior year. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank has reported 9.4% increase in full-year cash profit to $500.4 million. Argo reported record full-year profit of $312.9 million, up 79.9% year-on-year. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Frank Meehan, the Managing Director of Fiscal Note, the leading technology provider of global policy and market intelligence, next-generation carbon and ESG management software solutions. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment and wages figures. In the meantime, you catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 